Hi, Aaron here. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Story Studio Network and the co-host of Now and Next. And I have an invitation for you. If you love Now and Next, I'd love for you to consider becoming an official supporter of the show. For $10 a month, you'll be part of our insider community, getting early access to our daily podcasts, plus a host of other perks like Ask Us Anything exclusives. Most importantly, though, you'll be helping the growth of the show and our Story Studio Network team of dedicated professional broadcasters. Head to the link in our show notes or simply go to nowandnext.supercast.com. Signing up is super easy. You can do it right on your phone while you listen. Nowandnext.supercast.com. Thanks and enjoy today's episode. An original from Story Studio Network. I'm Aaron Trafford in Halifax. I'm Dave Trafford in Toronto. And this is Now and Next. Well, the Not My King chants get louder in Britain as we mark the passing of Queen Elizabeth. And it's not really a good look to be hauling off protesters. At a time like this, particularly when the world is watching, we'll discuss that coming up on Now and Next. Also, Ontario's education minister appears to be ordering school boards to honor the Queen. Welcome in. It is September the 15th. It's a Thursday. You're following along at home. And this is Now and Next for Story Studio Network. I'm not sure why this would surprise us that there might be protests at this time. And we can debate whether or not it's appropriate or anything else. But I guess the idea, and we've sort of touched on this over the last week or so, given the passing of the Queen. When is the right time to be talking about the efficacy of a, a, you know, a government that's led by a head of state that's that's not a citizen of your country, uh, mm-hmm. if, if not when we're passing the torch or you know the throne, so to speak. When is the when is the right time to have that conversation? I think it's absolutely the right time to have this conversation right now. Here's here's what I think we're all kind of falling victim. Not all, but many are falling victim to this mentality of, oh, she was the, she was the queen. She was a good person. Um, she did her very best with, you know, being born into this institution. Okay. If you are a British citizen who agreed with the monarchy, that is, that is the lens you can look at this through. But if you are somebody else from around the world who has been oppressed or taken over or colonized or otherwise disagrees with people just by birthright being born into this level of power, then protest. I mean, let's just like take this situation and say it's any other head of state. Like the Arab Spring, things like that. Heads of state being ousted, killed, assassinated. There are always protests. Well, I think that it kind of gets to the point then, Becky, where we're having a hard time separating Elizabeth from the institution of the monarchy. And I understand Mm -hmm. why. I mean, she's put obviously put an incredible stamp on this. But... You know, we said this earlier on, she was always there. Now we kind of have, now what does, what did she represent and what does that monarchy mean? And I think I've learned more about 
countries in the Commonwealth in the last week than I learned in the last 50 years. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think what's interesting is that I think, um, you know, we have to think back to when she first became queen and you go, a lot has happened since then. And maybe it made more sense back then, but now that, that now this is the time, right? Because we're, we have a new king and everything else, I think that might be the time to have the discussion to kind of go up to the queen and say, hey, this is fun, but we we got to get rid of you. It wasn't really the right time. So I think this is the right time. Well, I don't, I don't, again, I, again, I think directing it at the queen or directing it at Charles is misdirected. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be talking about the institution itself. So to be, the irony is here, you know, we're, we're in a place where we, we cherish our democracy and the right to protest and the right to free speech and all that stuff. Now, if people are starting to throw bricks, okay, I, I can get that that might be a bit of a, a, a an issue around, you know, you don't, that's, that's a problem. Uh, and we might respond in kind, but to have a protest that just questions the getting rid of the monarchy or suggesting that we do so, um, you know what, I, I, I just don't, not sure that that's the right tone. And it kind of lends itself to this story here in Ontario. The York region school board told their schools not to recognize or, or or actually talk about or make a big deal about the passing of the queen don't have it on television we don't want to be promoting the, this uh, any kind of attributes or anything else to the queen or the monarchy for fear that it will trigger some of our staff or students and it's easy for us kind of living in our cozy little world here in canada and you know all born to it and and, and enjoying the benefits of such that a lot of the folks who are come to this country are refugees and many of them would have been experiencing you know circumstances in their countries whether it was a commonwealth country or not but it might have been affected by the british empire and that's kind of what hangs over it so that was the intention behind it here comes the ontario government saying no you will observe a moment of silence on monday and you will lower the flag to half staff um, it, it, uh, so again, we're kind of in this institutional conundrum about how to deal with this. I think it's all just tone deaf. Cause I think what's ha- what, like you said, is now the time to have this conversation about the monarchy for the people who are protesting, not the folks who are throwing bricks. Okay. Because that's, that's the difference between protesting something and doing a criminal act. Okay. So like the throwing bricks, I don't condone, but for the people who are protesting, not my King, not my King. This has been their reality the entire time. They have always been having this conversation. So, you know, and and I'm going to use the phrase woke. I don't even really know what that means anymore because it gets thrown around. But all of a sudden, the rest of us are like, oh, shit, there is a significant portion of the global population who has been thinking this for a long time. And now that this lady has died, all of a sudden we're like, oh, we should probably talk about this. So I think there's a little bit of like tone deafness are happening across the board. Um, now, uh, interestingly enough that we've seen a lot of criticism of the minority protesters and celebration of the Irish protesters mm-hmm. that, that they are being lauded and celebrated for booing the queen. I think there was a big soccer game and, you know, a bunch of the Northern Irish population booed, um, so there's that discourse, but that's where we need to look at this. I mean, I also think of it as a, it's a similar, similar, but different situation to blaming Justin Trudeau for what happened with the residential schools in Canada. He was not running the country then he was a 
child. You can't blame him, but can you protest his government and his government's current response and stance to the historic wrongs? Yes. Justified, mm-hmm. justified, justified. So this isn't like, oh, tiptoe, she's not yet in the ground. It's come on, people. Like, this has never been right for half the world. Well, and I think, though, back to our conversation yesterday about whether or not there should have been a national holiday for the funeral, Becky, this whole question around the schools and how they will market, what better place within the context of an educational setting than to say, you know, if you were born here and your mom and dad and your grandparents are all from here, you enjoy a certain privilege. And I use that word with a small P without getting all explosive. I mean, God, the, the <laughs> word privilege all of a sudden becomes, yeah. you know, controversial. But we do live in a in privilege here if, and we were born into it. It doesn't mean we've got money. It doesn't mean we have, you know, any kind of elite uh, activity that's going on around us. But we, by virtue of where we were born, we ha- we have privilege. But it's important to recognize, just as we were talking about the other day around people who are living in poverty, there are people who live in your neighborhood who perhaps have suffered uh, and their families have suffered as a result of the colonialism that happened. And not so long ago. I mean, you hear, just look at the history of Kenya, right? Hmm. This has happened while we were all alive. So it's one of those things where I think you need a measured, mature response to this and say, hmm, this is a really important question. Mm-hmm. All of you five-year-olds right now are the ones who are probably going to decide this. So we should start the conversation with you right now at a, an appropriate level. But I don't get this whole thing of, oh, geez, we can't be talking about it. Yeah, when, the, mm-hmm. you know, they said, um, this is not the time to debate monarchies. It isn't. <laughs> like, I don't understand. And it's not that you want people to get into a spirited debate at five years old. But I think there's definitely education that can be there. And why can't you have the moment of silence and then have the discussion afterwards and, and tailor it depending on also who's in the class. Like, what's the makeup of the class, right? You can, you, you like, I, I understand that they try to make it equal for everybody. But at the same time, if you look around the classroom and go, okay, I have to tailor this based on people that grew up here or not. I think that's part of the, isn't that what education's for? I don't know. Maybe I'm misunderstanding. Yeah. Well, but on the other hand, I think there's also, it's also worth noting that there will be some very difficult memories perhaps for some of the staff or some of the students, then we make sure that that's taken care of, that there's proper support. Or if they don't want to be in the classroom when we talk about it, then let's do that. But I think generally speaking, we in this country, and certainly I think across the Commonwealth, I'm not suggesting that we, we should abandon the monarchy, but I'm thinking that this is an important time to talk about the merits of it. And as I said, you know, last week, if we can get to a point where you can tell me how the monarchy stunts the growth of our country, then I think that's a good place to start. I mean, I realize there are other, other um, issues around all of this, but again, back to what kind of king will Charles mm-hmm. be? What kind mm-hmm. of monarch will he be? Let's see what he's listening to because he doesn't have to be political on this, but to acknowledge the, the colonialism history the, and the, the damage that it did. Residential schools, there was a role that the, that the monarchy played in that. So there's a, there's a place here for him to initiate conversation at some point. Agreed. I think, and your question, it's just, I, I, we can, we can move on, but I want to say like, what role does the monarchy play? How does it stunt our growth? I'm like, why don't you go to Hong Kong and ask that question? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like that's all I'm saying is that it is not 
always through the lens that we have. We need, it is our job now to think of how the other global citizens are looking at this when we want to justify protesting. And I'd be curious to see, you know, how all of this sort of washes out on Tuesday of next week. Mm-hmm. Like there'll be the crescendo with the funeral. Tell me about the conversations and the level of maturity around them that we have in the coming weeks. I think that will be a, a telltale. All right, coming up, we've got uh, bigger issues. Yesterday we were talking about the Daily Bread Food Bank. It was really interesting. Um, I got a, a, um, a message, a DM in my Twitter account from a federal MP who heard the podcast and said, I had no idea that that many people were living in poverty, never mind visiting food banks. So he has put this show and the 2030 Project on his list of podcasts. Who is it? Give a shout Kevin, out. Kevin Vong here in uh, in Toronto. Uh, he is an, uh, an independent. There is some controversy around Kevin's uh, <laughs> uh, status as an MP. But, um, you know, Becky and I both have crossed paths with him in terms of being a commentator on, uh, on News Talk 1010. And, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's well-intended here. So thanks to Kevin for uh, supporting and promoting the show. Today, we're going to get into one of the things on the brief that Neil Hetherington will tell you is the number one tool to defeat, to eradicate, to mitigate, whatever, reduce poverty in this world. And that is housing. Here comes the brief. Well, you don't have to go very far these days when we start to talk about uh, the, the political agenda. And certainly, you know, that has been top of mind. It is here in Ontario. I know they're into a, um, a municipal election um, period in British Columbia as well. And, you know, I don't know that we would have t- said this as much in previous years, but that housing and affordable housing has now transcended, I think, all three levels of government, where it would have been in the purview of certainly the feds, mostly for the province, but now it really is landing on city council's desks. So it's, you know, one of the things that we have talked about a lot, certainly in the couple of the series that I've been doing, that have been dealing with some of the social issues. One of them is around the reduction of poverty. Neil Hetherington is the CEO at Daily Bread Food Bank. And he will tell you that the number one most powerful tool to reduce or eliminate poverty anywhere is home ownership. It's not just a great rental opportunity, it's home ownership. And we're a long way away from that. But he really does put a point on it, considering the number of people who now rely on food banks because of, you know, accelerated because of the pandemic and so on. And so I think it's interesting to see here in Ontario that the premier has decided initially to allow the strong mayor powers to. Uh, the mayors in Toronto and Ottawa, and the prime consideration and the purpose for doing so is to promote more housing. Desmond Brown is a, a realtor here in Toronto, and you hear his podcast, Sold in the Six. And uh, Tim Hudak is the former leader of the uh, PC Party here in Ontario and heads up the Ontario Real Estate Association. So I thought getting your perspective on this would be um, quite helpful. Thanks for being here. Great. Thanks for having us, uh, uh, David. Yeah, real pleasure to be back on the show. Yeah, well, it's been a while, Tim. So, and I know talking to you over the, the years, we get on this subject a lot. And the number one thing that you come back to um, is supply. And and I get that that's going to be an issue, but that's a long-term issue. Is there a way of expediting that? 
Absolutely. Um, well, I look forward to talking about the Strong Mayors Act. I was very pleased to see that the first piece of legislation from the re-elected Ford government did focus on the Strong Mayors Act with a focus out of there on beginning more housing uh, built. There are a lot of changes that can actually happen at municipalities. Dave, I'd be happy to talk about largely doing away with outdated bylaws from the you know bygone era of the 1970s that limit supply and limit choice. We did have some progress in Toronto, for example, in allowing for garden suites. That's going to be some more homes that will be made available in the city of Toronto. To answer your question, there's a lot more that can be done in that realm that just is red tape standing away of new housing opportunities. Yeah, I guess, Des, the whole problem, though, and we, we quickly fall into the, on paper, this looks like a great idea. Tell your neighbor says, hey, I don't want you building that in the backyard next to my place because it's just going to mean more traffic, more noise, more whatever. Uh, you know, the I don't want it, the NIMBY uh, aspect of it isn't regulation. It's one of those things that culturally we've kind of let go and it's taking control in so many spots where that becomes the biggest issue. That is definitely the biggest issue, the NIMBYism. Um, supply is still one of our biggest problems here, even though we have this window of opportunity right now for people to buy, to enter the real estate market with the lower interest rates, with the market slowing down, we still have a supply problem. So I have a number of buyers and we still can't find anything. And these are first time buyers. I think we're just here in Toronto, we're just feeling some of the pains of being a big city. We're finally turning into that big city that we've always wanted to be, like a New York, like a Paris. But what comes along with that is higher prices. And I'm sorry, but in a big city like this, not everybody is going to be able to buy a property. And I know Neil has great intentions, Neil Hetherington has great intentions, but it's not going to happen. To be fair, I mean, when I paraphrase what Neil is saying, his point is to suggest that Ownership actually provides you with the stability that, you know, creates opportunities for your health, your education, your kids socializing. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole lot of uh, texture to that. And I think the, the idea, Tim, is, you know, obviously nobody's going to suggest that you, <laughs> either I own a home or I'm going to live on the street. We don't want those extremes. But I think it underlines the, the, the backbone of a solution to a significant problem so that, in, in fact, affordable housing is a problem, but it leads to a larger issue, again, when we have so many people lining up at the food banks. Yeah, 100%. It says uh, Judy Garland famously said there's no place like home when she played Dorothy, and that's for a number of reasons. Number one, it's where we feel our most secure, our most comfortable. It's a place of our fondest memories. I don't think we will have any other thing that we own that means as much to us for safety and security uh, and our families as our home. Um, secondly, it's a proven investment uh, over over time uh, here in Canada. Uh, you may have a down market at any point in time, but you know a few years down the road it is going to pay off for you in the long run if you upgrade as your family comes along or for retirement. And to reinforce your point, uh, Dave, the third part about this is you know, there's very few things you can find economists agree on. There's the old joke, you can lie in economists from head to toe and they'll never reach a conclusion across the planet. They tend to agree, though, that um, home ownership that homeowners all else constant income jobs family their kids do better in school they get more involved as volunteers and in their neighborhood they build strong communities and if you have that as a foundation it helps right across the housing spectrum from ownership to rental to social housing the people who end up the worst off by our lack of supply is actually the most vulnerable 
the homeless or those that are fighting to maintain some kind of roof over their heads. You know, I was working, did some work years ago with uh, Habitat for Humanity and, and uh, to Tim's point, as they looked at um, the ROI on, on owning your own home. And to be clear, this gets misunderstood a lot. Um, Habitat for Humanity does not give people a home for free. Those folks have to pay a mortgage, have to qualify for the mortgage, they have to have sweat equity involved in the building of the home, et cetera. But for every dollar that they were investing in that home, there was $4 in social return in their community, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, I think we, we kind of get our, get our heads around that idea. Affordable housing is one thing, but it creates such strong community. It creates better schools. It creates better education, health systems for all of us. So we float the boat uh, that much higher as if we can get to that point. So my question for you is, if we look at yeah. the idea of, of supply, that's one thing. And let's, let's just say, you know, you and Tim can wave your wands and we're going to have all of the housing that we need. You've already touched on the point. It's the affordable side of it. So how do we balance those two things off? So, you know, people are making whatever money or the investment return that they want on their home. On the other hand, we do have an opportunity for affordable housing for a broader base of the of this of this this society very complex question uh first of all going back to your roi on the social benefits that can be accomplished in places like i'm seeing it right now Mm -hmm. in regent park where you have a great mix of condominiums condominium owners but they've also got that social housing aspect and it's mixed in i also saw it in in uh, riverdale when i used to live in riverdale with the bain co-op right in the heart of Riverdale off Logan there, where um, the co-op, of course, again, is an affordable rental situation. But in this Regent Park situation and in this Riverdale situation, when people are in those types of environments, it gives them hope. It gives them hope. I know I grew up in a very working class neighborhood um, where we were lucky to, to be able to live in our home. But I saw people going to work every day, coming home, and, own, and they own their homes, and I aspire to have that. And I think you can accomplish that by just making sure that there's a good mix in the neighborhoods in that way of lower income and, the, and middle of the higher incomes without having to own mm-hmm. a property. So you start moving into owning a property. There are a number of ways of getting in, and I know I'm getting a little bit off from what you were talking about, but when my wife and I started, we weren't afraid to rent out a portion of our property to be able to own in the city of Toronto. I don't bump into a lot of uh, young people who I deal with right now who are willing to do that. And you may call it a sacrifice or whatever, but it is another way in. So I guess I, I know I'm, I didn't completely answer your question, Dave, but that's, those are some of the ways in. When we start getting to the, um, the more complex solutions of um, actually building, like Tim had mentioned, it's, this is going to take a long time, even though now we have, a, we have the mayoral um, powers in Ottawa and Toronto for them to be able to say, okay, look, we're going to be moving ahead with this. We still have problems with trades. We have still have a lot of problems with getting these things up and going in a short period of time, and that's not going to happen. So this is not an overnight solution. So I don't know if I answered your questions, but that's uh, 
you know, where well, I'm no, going I think you this. added more worms to the can. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. in that respect, even the point around capacity, Tim, that's a cost that can't necessarily be controlled by the housing industry itself, i.e. those who are d- developing it or, you know, those who are involved in, in real estate sale. If we do not have the number of electricians or the number of carpenters or roofers or whatever we need to pour the foundation for these houses, all of a sudden, no matter how hard we try institutionally to make housing affordable, if we don't have the people, that drives up costs right, right off the bat that we really can't control. That is true. Uh, although I, I see a lot more rainbows and sunshine, Dave. I'm, I am more uh, optimistic. You can't turn around immediately, as you said. But the province has made some very important changes to promote more people to get into the trades. They're making it easier for those who have worked outside of Canada to show what they can do and not be caught up in red tape and get to work. And I think there's some positive suggestions on the table between the federal and provincial governments on changing our immigration point system, not something to reward those who have, you know, master's degrees, but also to say we really value the trades and bring more of that in. Ultimately, you know why I'm, I'm, I'm most optimistic, Dave, is because in this past provincial election campaign, and you, you covered it inside and out uh, on, on your podcast, but there was actually a remarkable consensus around housing policy. The platforms of the Conservatives, Liberals, New Democrats, and, and Green did have a lot of consistency on getting more homes built. They all want to hit the 1.5 million homes over 10 years target. And they were, rather, they were all open to looking at what may have been considered radical solutions a number of years ago around speeding up uh, approvals, uh, around giving as of right uh, to be able to develop more homes on a particular property convert commercial buildings to residential, build up along our subways, major transit lines. The Housing Affordability Task Force that I had the honor of being part of really laid out the roadmap. It just now takes a political courage to get that job done. But the parties are actually quite aligned on that. So I'd be curious to get both of your takes on this because I've heard this a lot lately in terms of some of the models that we're going to have to break the old one a little bit and and, and make it more compatible with the current circumstances we're in. And uh, I'm not sure why it's a bad idea. So I put it to both of you who are the real estate experts. The question is, if I am renting and you as my landlord or the building owner are getting the benefit of my rent, et cetera, and you're able to see value and increase in your, in your, in the building itself, is there room or does it make sense for me to somehow be able to um, get some of the equity as I am investing rather than renting? I'm actually part of my thing is a, um, an investment in your building so that if you decided that you were going to go off and sell that building and all of a sudden I don't have a place to live or my, my, my uh, rent would go up. Now I'm in a place where I've got maybe not a lot of money, but I've got some money that I'm able to say, Des, I've got this amount of money as a result of the equity I got in my rental unit. Um, and now I can afford that house where maybe I couldn't before because I've sort of put a little bit away over the last 10 years. Are there models like that out there that we should be looking at? There are models out there. I think it came up uh, just last week, the federal government talking about a rent-to-own uh, type of uh, program. We don't see a lot of it. Actually, I have not seen it at all. I've heard of them, but I've never seen it in my over 24 years in the business. Um, will a landlord be willing to give up some of that equity? I doubt it, because the landlord the one, is the one who's taking the risk. With the initial investment, with the maintenance, uh, with the carrying costs every month, and most of these landlords are carrying their properties on a shoestring. 
and a lot are even on negative cash flow. So I don't see it working. I hear about these all the time. And to me, they sound more like, I guess, like the little schemes that they're trying to, to, to put together. Like they always come from, the, from one of the levels of government. And to me, it's very political and they just don't seem feasible to me at all. And Tim's, Tim's okay, smiling Tim, about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I get, I understand the, the, I've made the investment as the developer and the landlord in, in that. But let's face it, when I'm paying my maintenance cost or my whatever that might be, it's all baked into my rent anyway. And mm-hmm. if, if you're running it on a shoestring and the poor margins, that's probably your fault in terms of how you run the business. Um, but let's, let's get mm-hmm. past that minutia. Is there a plan? Is there a model in there that says, as I am investing in my housing, I can somehow look at some level of stability, uh, future stability to make my housing more affordable in the future. So I don't get locked in to a certain lifestyle or a certain spot to live. Yeah, I, I, I like the way you're thinking of this, Dave Trafford. They should be listening to you more at Queen's Park. <laughs> I, I think this has, uh, has some legs. Look, it's not going to work everywhere, but it, it can work uh, in, in spots. Let me, let me tell you more about that. We're, we're in a housing affordability crisis. So we need to look at every possible option. We, we, we talked through pretty well the supply crisis that exists. The other one is one of equity. So if you come from a wealthy family, your parents owned a home, it's pretty easy to get in the market, right? You can knock on the bank of mom and dad and you, know, you get in the market. But if you come from more limited means, your family were renters, you're a new Canadian, your income is limited uh, in your family history, there's not a big pile of wealth there. There's not a level playing field. It's pretty tough. So I think new financial models can really help deliver the keys to people who want to join the middle class. Some of these models exist in Australia, New Zealand, the United States, not really here in Canada yet, as Desmond rightly said. For example, you would have an investor that would buy the home and you would be a co-owner with that investor. And just like the old rent to own programs, pay that back over time. There's a group called Key Living that I don't know if Des has worked with yet, but you might want to have in your show that is trying to do that model here. Interestingly, when we pushed on this model with the government, Dave, we found out the legislation passed in the 70s around the rent control and the land transfer tax, sorry, the Landlord-Tenant Act and um, the land transfer tax don't allow for this because they never thought about it in 1977. So you run into a lot of red tape there. You have to pay the land transfer tax twice and all that nonsense. Will this be the, the magic uh, key to solve the issue? No, but I do think it can help a lot of people. We just got updated legislation to enable the model to work financially. So I, I want to get back to the point that, Des, you were making about the, the mixed neighborhood. And we used to live in the co-op down in the St. Lawrence market years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was fabulous. Just, just before we could afford to get into the, the housing market. And we had, you know, great neighborhood, good schools, walk to the market. You know, it was, it was, yeah. it was terrific. And so it kind of opened my eye, you know, 30 odd years ago now to the ability to, ha- but the importance that you put on the mixed community. So one of the things that I've also seen come up is the idea, rather than having strictly social housing, that you have a subsidy because you live in an apartment at this address and that's the subsidized apartment, that in fact, because you only have a limited um, income, you will spend up to a certain level of 30% of your income on your rent. Yeah. And then the government will top that up with the subsidy. So you can live pretty much anywhere you wanted, provided that you fell within that parameter. Rather than redeveloping Regent Park, which they desperately needed to do, and I'm glad to see its success, you could be doing that kind of stuff across the country with by breaking the model. And I don't get a sense that we're really 
embracing the idea or the urgency maybe of doing that. No, you're so right. You know, we can break that model. Our history shown that there's nothing worse than clumping all of the social housing in one spot. You know, we have our neighborhoods around the city and unfortunately it's led to some pretty dismal results. And Regent Park was a great example of that on why they finally did pull it down and, and redeveloped it. I mean, it wasn't just the, the people who were in there, but it was just the, the geographical layout as well didn't lend to anything. And there were no amenities close by for people. Um, it, it, was just, it just didn't work. Um, so I think you're right. You know, if we can just start scattering it a little bit more and then it, it, it's, it's going to give, like I said, the people that are in those situations more hope to move out of it. It really will. And we, we see it. it. It is successful. I think the new Regent Park is showing that it can be done. Can I throw one more idea at you? That's kind yeah, of old. Please. Yeah. We talked about the old rent to own and how to modernize those. There also was a program when we had a housing supply crisis, the 1960s and 70s called HOME. It was an acronym for Home Ownership Made Easy. It started with the Davis uh, government, I believe. And the way it worked was the biggest let costs really housing are the land costs right now. So they use government-owned land, and they built the homes on that land with private sector developers. And then they were targeted at first time home, home buyers and new Canadians. And they could get onto the, um, onto the homeowner's ladder quite affordably then. And believe it or not, this is actually part of the liberal platform. It wasn't described in that way, but a similar concept of using government-owned land and targeting the homes, which would be affordable, at first-time buyers who would be challenged in the marketplace any other way. Sounds a little bit like uh, a page ripped again out of that, uh, the uh, uh, Habitat book. I mean, where they've identified the families that they had to pay their mortgage, but again, there's a very specific criteria. Um, and, and that model works. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, Tim, that we're relying on the uh, nonprofit sector or those kinds of groups, advocacy groups, to be the innovators here, to, to, to save us from ourselves and from our regulation. And do you get the sense that private sector, though, is really willing to step up and play with this? Oh, I do. I, I've, I've never known a developer who didn't want to make a buck, right? So I think if the incentives line up the, the right way, they see the government making action and getting costs down for sure. I'm a big fan of Habitat for Humanity, um, Dave, but we're actually a partner with them, the Ontario Real Estate Association, supporting their work. Um, but when, the, when groups like Habitat came to our Housing Affordability Task Force, they, they, they were calling out for help because the exact same issues were impacting them. They, they couldn't find land that they could really afford uh, to build a middle-class home. Uh, other social housing groups said, when we try to bid on a house to turn it into something for social housing, it's just way too expensive. And by the way, we've got this tax and this fee and this delay and all the NIMBY forces descend because they don't want those people moving into the neighborhood. So they're really calling out for the government to clear aside these barriers as well. Yeah. And, and Tim, also what came out in your task force was getting rid of a lot of that red tape. So even if these developers or builders are making a profit, which is fine, of course it is, um, they need to start being able to put those shovels into the ground a lot faster, which would help us solve this supply problem. If I sounded like I was hanging crepe, uh, Tim, I didn't mean to. I, I, I do share some of your optimism <laughs> that we'll get it done. It's just going to require energy and, and a, level of, uh, a level of political courage. A lot of courage. And, and you know, the NIMBY word is one we haven't talked about probably enough considering uh, what, a, what a scourge that has been in providing housing that people can actually afford. And, you know, Dave, we're hearing about a new term out there 
um, called Banana, right? Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. But sorry, it will require courage of political leaders, beginning with the province and then empowering people, I think, like mayors to ignore the NIMBY forces, to give people as of right, for example, the ability to have a secondary suite. So you could have, you know, quality rentals in every neighborhood of the province, not just big buildings to enable people to say, well, I've got the property here. You know, I could tear down that wartime bungalow instead of building a four or five story monster home. What if I built a duplex or a triplex so two or three families could get their foot on the ladder? Or if you have government or commercial buildings that were downsizing because people can work from home or go to a hybrid model, why can't we convert them to residential? And if you do this, what's called as of right, you say this is allowed without all kinds of different drag them out committee meetings and fees and delays, then you can really make the impact. Des Brown, thanks for joining us. Listen to his podcast, Sold in the Six. He's all part of our effort here at uh, Story Studio Network. And uh, Tim Hudak from the Ontario Real Estate Association. Good to talk to you guys. Thanks, Dave. Always good to talk to uh, Tim Hudak. And, and again, in case you missed it, Des Brown does a show with us here at uh, Story Studio Network and uh, talks sold about the, in the six. sold in the six. So you want to keep an eye on that. Last night I was out uh, playing hockey with the old boys at uh, St. Mike's and uh, our summer season finished last night. The winter starts next week. So we're back at it <laughs> Monday and Wednesday. And it was really cool because the buzz in the room was we're all going to go home and fire up Gem or CBC because the documentary series by the CBC started last night, remembering the 50 years ago, 27 days in September, which was the 1972 Summit Series. And, you know, this is all myth and lore now and and i i appreciate that you guys have no real idea of how i'm like i'm like becky what is he he's speaking boomer to us he's <laughs> yes, speaking I, boomer I, to I, us I, I, I appreciate that <laughs> but it was really a cool thing and if you get a chance to watch it 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 puts the hockey of canada and the russians the soviets in a highly charged political setting this mm-hmm. was cold war hockey yeah. And, and at the time, Canada couldn't have the best players in the world in the Olympics or in the world championships because they were all in the NHL. Hmm. So there was a rule in international hockey that didn't allow professionals to play. This is a really fascinating thing in terms of our own sense of our character uh, as a country and how it was expressed through hockey and the players. Phil Esposito and, 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 and all these guys that were in, you know, instrumental in this thing, they took for granted the Soviets. And it was, it's quite funny when they talked about their summer training program and, you know, you see the Russians and they're all doing dry land workouts and all this crazy stuff that keeping them in shape when they weren't on the ice and the North Americans, the Canadians, <laughs> they're, they're sitting at the cottage going for a swim and having a beer. I mean, that was their form of, <laughs> of summer. But one of the most profound things that was said last night, not surprised that it came from, from Ken Dryden, he says, Canadians are a proud people. We just weren't sure what to be proud of. And, and, and in the context of that, it was really an interesting piece. And, that, and throughout this week, I thought, hmm, that's kind of a, I think that's sort of where we still are a little bit. 
And many of us, and it particularly applies, I think, to our American friends. They're proud Americans. But what exactly are you proud of? And I just thought mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. kind of a neat cherry on top of everything else we've talked about in terms of our history moving forward, you know, doing the right thing. What What is it that we are Canada proud of? I I don't know how to answer that question except to say it's it's an extremely good question because I think it hits the nail on the head of specificity creates connection. So if you want to be proud of something, get specific, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and that, that ties into everything we've just talked about. Like, you know, today and this week with the queen, like if you are a monarchist, let's get specific. What about, what about the monarchy? Are you proud of? What about Canada? Yeah. Are you proud of? What about hockey being a hockey player? Are you proud of for me, the business owners that I work with day in and day out, it comes down to, okay, you have a business, but like, what do you really do? What are you proud to do and deliver to the mm. world? Specificity breeds connection. I think that's probably what he's really getting at is what is it that connects us all? Is it well, Tim Hortons? Ken, is, Ken it, is it hockey? Yeah, well, what is it? Well, what here's is what, it? Here's what's funny is in, in, in the context of this um, of this documentary, they dropped in the old ads from 1972, and it was a Canadian uh, fifty or a, Labatt fifty beer. Oh, <laughs> you, you you try to find me a Labatt fifty beer anywhere, and but it's all the kind of cool summertime stuff we would do in Algonquin, right? And yeah, and and it and it's all this sapia view of what we are as a country. And they really do get at it because when when the Canadians lost in game one, seven to three, after opening the scoring 30 seconds into the game, the whole country almost collapsed in depression. It, it's right. fascinating. There's even a clip of John Diefenbaker watching the game and almost swearing, like, holy crap version of it when the Canadians lost so badly to the Russians. So what is it that we attach our identity to? What is it that we attach this national pride to? It's a really interesting question. So I get it. You're not a hockey fan. You're not going to get the whole thing around the, the, the history of the game. But this documentary puts us in that moment. And by accident, it happened during this week when we're talking about the monarchy and our, the history of our country. It's kind of kind of a cool design that it happened this week. Well, if you need a reason to drink some Pepsi and eat some Fritos and sit on the couch, there you go. There you go. Because I'm also off tomorrow because On the Ledge is coming into the feed tomorrow, right? It is. Yep. Yeah. Drop it down and now we're going to have the uh, usual suspects back around the table. And it's funny, um, based on all of this, just to, to tee that up, they were supposed to originally be back in business and they have been doing business at Queen's Park, but they dropped some, you know, this legislation about long-term care that you, if, you, if you're not... Uh, you don't need the acute bed. We're going to push you to a long-term care mm-hmm. facility, mm-hmm. Um, 70 mile, 70 kilometers in the GTA, 150 kilometers outside the GTA. But, um, you know, you're still on your list and all that kind of thing. They didn't have hearings on it. They didn't have mm-hmm. committees, hearings mm-hmm. on it. They And then they uh, adjourned the, the legislature until after the municipal elections. That just kind of, they dropped the bomb yesterday. So that takes us, what, until the end of October. So, wow. Um, I think with the ledge not sitting, we're going to have a whole lot to talk about. This is now and next for Story Studio Network. Aaron Trafford here. I'm Dave Trafford and our crack producer, Becky Coles. We'll talk to you tomorrow on the ledge. Find out where you get your podcasts. This is SSN. 
Story Studio Network.